Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. My guest this week, of course, we've heard him before, Martin North, Principal of Digital Finance Analytics and the Walk the World, which is, as I just learned, the DFA YouTube channel. Uh, Martin, how are we doing? Pretty good. Yourself? I'm not too bad. It's busy. We're just chatting off air that um, <laughs> everyone wants everything from us at the moment. Uh, what's the funniest request you've received over this uh, isolation period? Well, uh, of course, I have lots of data and everybody wants to know what's going on with uh, households and businesses. But, uh, you know, when, when somebody asks for a very complicated query and says, can you do it in half an hour? Um, <laughs> you know, the, it's funny because it's pitiful if they only knew what had to be done to get the answer. But of course, they don't. They just want the answer. So That's I spend so a, lot, a lot of my time writing weird SQL queries into the middle of the night so that I can then answer their query. And uh, I had one late yesterday relating to property investors. And, you know, she said, oh, can you do it by tomorrow morning? I thought, yeah, here we are. 11, 11 p.m. last night, I was writing more queries. So wow. <laughs> welcome this, to my world. This reminds me of um, back in the day when I worked for Ibisworld, which is like a data analytics company. And mm. basically what they do is accrue uh, the ASIC codes and the relevant GDP numbers and revenue and all that. And uh, there was one report. It's very funny. It's a bit of an internal meme. Uh, it was the prostitution and brothels report. And it was the most popular report uh, out of the entire database. And it just, like, what do you expect of humans? Like that, that is human nature at its core. It is. I'll tell you one other quick story. And that is, um, I run live YouTubes, um, you know, once a week on a Tuesday at 8pm. Yeah. And uh, I ran one a couple of weeks ago when people could actually give me a postcode and I would give them back the stress metrics okay. for their particular postcode, right? And I was absolutely flooded with people from all over the country saying, here's my postcode. Here's, you know, so it's one of those things where, oops, I probably set myself up there for a bit of a problem realizing, of course, there's two and a half thousand postcodes across Australia. <laughs> and I reckon I had requests from at least half of them. So why, why the postcode? You were just intrigued to map sort of where your audience is. Well, well no, because my um, uh, database, you know, my right. surveys, it's yeah. all done down to postcode level. So very yeah. important to understand that things are not equal across Australia at the moment. There are different things going on in different locations. So I run everything at a postcode level. But I've got this little tool that allows me to then look at a particular postcode and say how many people are there, how many people are in stress, how many are in rental stress, what is the risk of default, all those sorts of things. Mm. And um, people in those postcodes were very keen to understand uh, 
how things stacked up. So, so I set myself up there completely. Now, speaking of data, um, mm. I've been asking a lot of guests as we get into these specific episodes. Obviously, coronavirus is the, uh, the talk of the town and the, that big R, R word as well. Um, it's, it's very interesting seeing a report from uh, Harvard Medical School this week that shows sort of satellite imagery of Wuhan hospitals and how they, they some, not somehow, but they, they are starting to believe that the disease was probably more widespread in somewhere like October, um, which has me thinking about when did you start to notice that this was a real problem and i know that people like ourselves being in finance we're more adept at finding this sort of information but i I guess i'm curious for you for me it was that friday the 13th of march when the grand prix fashion week was cancelled that's when it really sort of uh made me think okay this is this is really really serious well i actually did my first post about it back in january right Uh, and it was when, when I run workshops for corporates, we quite often do war gaming. Mm-hmm. War gaming is effectively a way of thinking about different futures and how you would react. And one of my war game scenarios was always a pandemic. Um, <laughs> and so when I started hearing about this in early January, I went back to some of my notes and looked at some of the assumptions that we made, you know, a few years ago now, but quite regularly uh, played out. And so I started to talk about this um, during January. In fact, I did my first uh, recording for the ABC News Radio back in January saying, what, what if it came here? What, what would the implications be? And I said, could have a significant Im- economic impact if it came here, could actually impact house prices, could, act, you know, could actually impact the economy. And that was quite early. And then I watched this thing and I, I couldn't believe that they were so slow in closing the borders. You know, know. if we'd shut the borders three or four weeks earlier, we could have actually um, kept the thing out, but we didn't. You know, we were really very slow. And uh, despite, you know, the World Health Organization, and our borders aren't fine, you know, you just leave them open. But in fact, if we'd shut them earlier, we would have actually uh, uh, come out. So by the time it came to uh, the Grand Prix, it was all absolutely happening, and I knew it was happening. Mm. I'd updated my models. Um, I'd updated my scenario models in February and then at the end in March. And um, so I've been sort of on, on the, if you like, on the foot front of the curve in terms of the impact. And I still don't think we fully understand yet what the economic fallout will be. And, you know, people talking about V-shaped recoveries and stock market recoveries. I'm missing the point. Um, this is going to play out not over a few weeks or even a few months, but years. And, you know, Jerome Powell yesterday in his press conference mm. basically said um, the economy in the US is going to need massive support for a long period of time. They're going to have to allow the bubbles to keep bubbling and print more, print more money. Mm-hmm. And, and essentially we've got the same here. You know, we, we should not expect everything to pop back to where it was pre COVID. Uh, you know, employment will be, unemployment will be higher. The pressures on the economy will be significant. And I think many small businesses will fold or have folded and will just not be there. So, you know, post COVID, however, we actually come out the back of it and it could be a wave two. It might not be, you know, We've got huge issues ahead, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, I spoke to a former head of innovation at News Corp on another show a few times now. And initially, he thought when he was mapping the data on cases, he actually thought it would be a V-shaped recovery, but he's never been able to give me a reason, a proper reason why that I could believe. Um, 
And to your point about the borders, you're so right. I remember this one, t- this one post. It might have been from uh, Phil from uh, I think it's Aleph Economics on on Twitter, and he was posting about how there was still flights coming from Wuhan to the major cities in Australia in February. Yep. And that that blew my mind. Um, yeah. And, and of course, the point is that people didn't really twig that, in fact, the US was the problem, right? So effectively, mm. we know that the virus was yeah. knocking around in the US for a long time. And then we had people come from the US to Australia. So in fact, even if they'd shut down the connectivity to Wuhan earlier, unless they'd actually been rigorous about shutting the borders and stopping people from other places coming, we'd have probably, um, you know, come through. You know, the, the community transmission rates at the moment in Australia are very, very low, but if we were to open the borders, um, unless it's controlled all over the world, it'll just come back again. So yeah. this is not going to be fixed quickly. From your perspective, what's changed in how you work over the last few months, if, <laughs> if at all? Well, actually, um, I mean, I've been running my uh, studio uh, in my home environment for a long time, and I do all my work here. I moved down uh, from the centre of Sydney about eight years ago to uh, this location specifically so that I could work and uh, you know live in the same environment so for me personally in terms of work um what's happened is that the volume of queries has gone up um luckily we have high speed nbn and that's been quite reliable so that's been pretty good uh and um you know even well when people were complaining about the um the fact that they were on um you know xadsl circuits and had lots of uh, capacity because we've got uh, fiber right to the premise um we we still have got uh, full speed so that really made a huge difference um the other thing i think that changed was that uh, i had lots of media people previously who'd come and you know interview me and make recordings and what have you here now they all do it on skype so my um the gear that we're using now which is my main camera um has been <laughs> in overtime used to uh, provide um feeds for you know news 24 and those things as well so so they're all happily now consuming the um uh, the quality that i can i can produce in fact somebody in the ABC said the other day, this is one of the best um, uh, studio feeds that I've had from, you know, remote yeah, of environment because, yeah. because I've got the blue, the green screen and I got yeah. the, you know, the good camera and the, and, and the broadband. Um, so yeah, it's really just proved the model, you know, I mean, basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's allowed me to continue. Now, of course, you know, I've missed, missed lots of social interaction and all those things, and you know, it's been not, not been easy. But in terms of my core work and what I've been doing, actually hardly anything changed. Mm. Yeah, that's not surprising. I think I, I'm in the same boat. The only thing that I changed here was that um, we got Ethernet over power, which is a very interesting little tool because uh, we're in one of these silly old houses. Although we have MBN, there's no uh, ports in anything but next to the TV. You know, like as most old houses were built, it's literally just a phone line. So, um yeah, it's 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 very funny. Out of inter- out of personal interest, what's the camera that you normally record or use? So this this is actually a, a Sony FX9. Oh, nice! It's a beautiful um, camera. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been I was using Blackmagic cameras in the studio for a long time, but when the FX9 came out, uh, and because at that stage I was doing quite a lot of uh, recording, up, you know, not here but down the road as it were as well. Um, so I decided to splash out, and it's the best investment I have made. It is such yeah. a good camera. Uh, autofocus is brilliant. The uh, controls are fantastic, and it's so flexible. So yeah, I, I you know, it's, it's it's been an expensive number, but for the amount of work we do, it's so it's paying for it. itself. It yeah, pays it for itself. Yeah. Now, uh, speaking to our production team, and and we're sort of 
thinking in terms of topics to talk about at the moment. And I think one of the biggest things that I've been thinking about is opportunism. Like mm-hmm. I know, I know that we are in a recession technically and that the next few years will be hard, but there is a particular group in the audience that have been professional traders or regular traders for quite some time. And now with the recession coming, it's likely that volatility is going to increase. So I guess I'm curious from your perspective in a six to 18 month window, where do you think we'll see moments of opportunism? Mm. Well, we're in a bear market and um, that means that there'll be huge amounts of volatility. You know, the market's dropped uh, a few percent today, it dropped 6% in the US overnight. Um, That's going to continue for some time. My own view is that the market is completely disconnected from reality at the moment. Um, And uh, there's probably, you know, a few reasons. One is, of course, all of the um, money that's being printed by central banks. Secondly, there are a lot of naive investors going in and uh, thinking that it's easy to rise it up from the from the bottom and so they've actually put you know gone in see the number of new new accounts has just gone through the roof um and thirdly of course you've got this weird situation where the market is saying well yeah i know corporate profits are going to be very low for quite some time but we're going to look through that right mm-hmm. the question is how far do you look and you know how many zombie companies are there a lot of them so so i i guess that, you know, my first point is um, I think that volatility could be your friend if you know how to use it, but a lot of people will be taken to the cleaners. And uh, the fact is for every you know, uptrade that you make a profit on, somebody else loses. So there's going to be a lot of winners and a lot of losers, first point. I think the second point is that the um, assumption we have to work with is that central banks will go on printing for a long, long time. Mm. You know, I mentioned Jerome Powell earlier on. That means there's going to be lots of liquidity sloshing around the market. And that means that um, there will be potentially significant distortions in the markets over the you know, short to medium term. My own view is the markets will fall again and they will fall quite hard but it won't be for a little while. Um, and that isn't specifically COVID related. So my view is that COVID has been a catalyst yeah. for a set of events that was already happening. Look back to last September when we had the, um, you know, the repo situation and the Fed then started throwing, throwing liquidity in. So it's just part of that bigger picture. We have a corporate debt scenario in the US particularly, but elsewhere as well, which is unsustainable. I think we've got a lot of zombie companies. And, and so we're going to see a bit of a shakeout. And there will be some sectors that are going to be winners and some losers. My own worry is that we're going to try and revert essentially to the economy pre you know, the COVID and pre the crisis, rather than actually thinking about where the opportunities lay over the next three to five years in terms of some of the more innovative opportunities that are there. And I personally think that we should be looking for those innovations um, rather than actually, if you like, going back around the old cycle once more. I don't think the finance sector will do particularly well over the next two to five years um, for all the reasons that are pretty obvious. But there will be other, some other sectors where I think, you know, and I guess biotech is, is perhaps one where there will be opportunity. Uh, I think potentially also some of the uh, you know, the tech areas where effectively people are thinking about what the next innovations are going to be and the next business models are going to be are also worth exploring. So I think probably um, important to switch away from, you know, just thinking, well, the finance sector is always a safe bet. Mm. Don't think it is a safe bet now, but there are going to be other opportunities, I guess. Yeah, I actually had this debate with an uncle at, um, it was my 30th birthday about uh, two weeks ago. And we, we were having a dinner, you know, six people or five people only. And uh, so there was... A few of us there and, um, you know, I was asked the question, what would you be doing 
uh, if you were my daughter and she's, you know, 2021, she's got some savings, quite a lot of savings actually, because, you know, we're a hardworking family. And uh, he asked me his opinion on what I'd be doing with that money. And I gave him my opinion. One of those was investing in herself and her own business that she has, Hmm. but also not trying to pick the market. And that just fell right on deaf ears. It was like, oh, I think NAB's a great company. And uh, and it just... Uh, Have you yeah, looked I, at the NAB share price over 20 years? Oh, good dividends. <laughs> oh, yeah. All that sort of stuff. And um, but, but I guess I'm intrigued of what you mentioned about the central banks. We know they're obscuring price. So you don't think that if the market comes down, they'll be able to support the market like they did in, say, March? If, well, if it happens, we don't, we don't hmm. know, of course. The question is, is capitalism dead or not, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that, I mean, that's the philosophical question, right? Because at the moment, if you look at what central banks are doing, they're buying more and more of the market, effectively. Look at um, Bank of Japan. Bank of Japan now owns 40% of the Japanese economy. Um, the question is, what are the long-term implications of that particular strategy? Now, there are people out there who say the, the future is going to be uh, stagflation or you know hyperinflation um, because effectively you've got a lot, a lot more money sloshing around the system to chase some um, assets and things but the point I'd make is that a lot of that money that the central banks are, are printing isn't going into the normal economy the real economy it's going into the financial system mm-hmm. so effectively we've got a complete disconnect between financial assets and the real economy and my own view is that that's going to create significant issues ahead such that um, there could be a future that's deflationary and we see wages going backwards and we see costs, uh, uh, prices falling rather than rising. Mm. And at the moment, I'm not clear which of those two futures is actually the right, the right one to go for. But of course, your strategy will be very different. Mm. If you were going to be in a, um, a, you know, an inflationary environment, then things like gold makes some sense because effectively you hold value. If you think it's going to be deflationary, then gold is actually not a very good protection and there are potentially other strategies so it, I'm, I'm waiting for those early leading indicators because it's too soon to know which of those two futures is likely to be there but the fed is absolutely committed to blind out the bubble further and of course the, the bigger the bubble the bigger it pops and i i guess i'm curious around um the trigger because i i personally would have thought that march when i was looking at the credit markets and the the massive opportunities that were shown in good companies but just the fact that uh, basically zombie companies were pushing the market down massively. Mm. I thought, okay, surely this is the moment where the market is pushed down. Um, and, you know, as we know, it came down to roughly 30, 35% on the NASDAQ. But we've still got, I, I noticed, you know, earnings seasons wise, we've not seen the data impact these companies. We know that your Disney's of the world have shut down their uh, resorts. We know that. Uh, you know, people aren't doing things like going to restaurants, but in the big corporations that, you know, people are essentially speculating on with that check they've received from the government, uh, we're not seeing the data yet that shows that earnings are down to the point that would freak out the market. So maybe it's it's come uh, July, August, September in Australia, and maybe it's around the same quarter in the U.S., well, I think, yeah, I think you're right there. I mean, it's too soon to know precisely how corporate profits are being impacted. But, you know, you'd have to hypothesize that in sub-segments, profitability is shot through the floor, you know. Mm. Um, now, some banks will be doing quite well for all the, all the trading and all the positioning that they're taking. But that, of course, varies very uncertain income. Mm. 
Mm. Um, others are going to find their margins squeezed you know, if, if, in the financial sector. Obviously, things like transport and travel are definitely um, you know, taking a bit of a bath at the moment. But I think you should also look at demand for um, consumer goods. So we know that um, you know, the momentum from retail, both here and in the, in the US and indeed in Europe, is, is, is down at the moment. Mm. And that's a confidence issue from consumers. It's also a, an availability of funds issue. And then there's an inventory and supply chain issue as well. So all those three things are working. So, you know, this is a one in a hundred year thing we're dealing with here. And um, I, I just get a bit um, uh, annoyed when people basically are trying to talk it all up and say, no, it'll be fixed by September. You know, everything will yeah. go back to normal. I mean, it's just we, a V, Martin. <laughs> what are you talking about? Stocks go up. <laughs> well, I, I made a post the other, the other day with, with somebody in the US who said, you know, is it a V? Is it a W? Is it an X? You know, what is it? You know, is it a U? We, we don't know. We, um, we won't know for some time. In Australia, of course, the critical question is September, right? End of September, yeah. you know, job keeper, job seeker, turn into a pumpkin. Um, the banks will suddenly start uh, wanting uh, mortgage repayments back. And, um, you know, I think that that's going to be the critical tipping point. Now, what the government will do is the interesting question because they've been sending different signals, right? So they turned off childcare support and, well, changed it dramatically. And then they said, well, the rest of it will probably run to September, but there isn't a lot of appetite from some quarters in the, in the, in the current party to continue it beyond. Others are saying, well, there'll be some targeted support for, say, tourism beyond it, but not generally. Mm. So there's a lot of unknowns in terms of how it's going to hit households. And, of course, it's also worth making the point that um, JobKeeper was nowhere near as well utilised as people were expecting, right? So the $6 million came to $3 million. It's probably lower than that now. And... What's quite fascinating about that is the Treasury put out some postcode-level data quite recently, and I looked at that and correlated it with my mortgage stress data. And guess what? There is a very high correlation between mortgage stress, in other words, people struggling with their mortgages, and a job keeper. So, really? yeah. So Hopper's Crossing, for example, in Melbourne, right? One of the, one of the um, most significant ones is on both lists, um, which I think Jeez. is interesting. So that tells me something about this is going to be a significant crunch in some areas of the country. Yeah. But it won't, we won't know till September. Probably. Yeah, and we will have to wait and see. I mean, even in our own business, March, I think, um, you know, we look at our business based on profitability, not gross sales or anything like that. Mm. I think our uh, net margin in March was negative 60%. So it was, in comparison to the previous year, it wasn't, it wasn't very good. But now people are wanting to do lots of things. So I'm, I'm wondering if that's just end of financial year and people have budgeted the money mm. and then what happens in September. And I think it's just, like you said, it's, we just got to wait and see what actually happens. Well, I've had a couple of conversations this week with clients who want to pay me before the end of this financial year yeah. because they got, they got the money in this year's budget. They don't have it in next year's budget. Yeah, that's so funny. Um, <laughs> I, I watch your coverage with Alex as per usual, the, um, the end of the month series. Always nice to sort of sit down on the couch, have a, <laughs> an old-fashioned on Negroni and, and, and watch that. You cover a lot of data. Um, you covered the R word, recession, wow. uh, that everyone's so scared of. One that actually we are outperforming the world in in a positive light. So it's not nearly as bad, I guess, as, as the US. No. Uh, as you said, retail sentiment is down. There's that McKinsey report everyone's read uh, recently where people are basically pessimistic about the economy but not themselves. So there's sort of mm. not, there's not... It's much not my problem, up. it's somebody else's problem, right? Yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, unemployment, we know, will be very high over the, over the coming months. Yeah. 
particularly post-JobKeeper. Yep. I, I had here, and the Royal Commission, remember that? <laughs> like, that seems like a the lifetime ago. The, the Royal what? <laughs> the, what's, what's that? That is, uh, that is weird. Like, because I looked at our notes last time, and we were talking about that. Yeah, um, that that's wild. And, and yeah. sidebar on that, you know, APRA basically is now, and ASIC is basically undone any of the... T- you know, things that they had done of to course, try and actually... because they have to. <laughs> yeah, so it, suddenly, yeah, interest-only loans, no problem. Just, you know, switch no, over, no, no problem. <laughs> no worries, no worries at all. Um, do, are there particular calendar events other than the JobKeeper uh, change, supposed changes in September that you're looking forward to over the next six to 12 months? Well, I'm inter- I'll am i be interested to see what uh, they say. In, I think it's July when the JobKeeper review comes out um, there will have to be some sort of budget later in the year right now the, yeah, the track October, rec- right yeah exactly and then the track record of both treasury and um, and the reserve bank in terms of estimating anything is completely off the wall i mean they have they have been so inaccurate you know if if, if they were in the private sector and had made such um you know forecasts so far from reality they'd be out of business um we but <laughs> Do we care? Well, we probably should care. So I'm going to be interested in that. Um, I'm also going to be very interested to see what what happens at the end of the year uh, in in terms of do we get another hot summer and is that going to actually have a very significant impact on uh, agriculture again? Because a lot of the agricultural sector is looking a little bit brighter now because of all the rain. But, you know, is that going to continue? I'm not sure. Um, And uh, I also am going to be interested to see what happens when we don't get international tourism over the summer. Yeah. Right. Because that has been significantly cramped last year because of the bushfires. Um, you know, the borders are still shut. My suspicion is the borders will still be shut, and there might be a few average exceptions. But but you know, it's unlikely we're going to see tourism here over the summer. And therefore, think about February next year after that summer season hasn't happened. You know, let's assume we don't get a second wave. And we might. We might. Let's assume we don't. Mm. There'll be a lot of businesses that are hanging on by their, you know, teeth, uh, hoping they're going to get through to the end of this year and then get some momentum over the summer period. If that doesn't happen, um, that's why I'm saying this is going to play out not over a few weeks, but over a few months. So that's some of the things I'll be looking at. Um, You covered something really interesting in uh, your talk with Alex. Um, You made a point that, well, you've actually been in a few interviews. The the importance of dropping GDP is a measure a measure of national performance. Now, I remember yeah. when I worked at Ibisworld, we discussed this quite a lot, yeah. and the the measure internally brought up was gross national product. So I was curious, what is why why or what should investors be looking at uh, <laughs> as as a better measure of the economy? Well, you know, GDP measures activity, right? doesn't tell you anything about whether it's good activity or bad activity. So if you're gun running or if you're running prostitutes, um, that's all activity that would actually be supportive of GDP. Um, That shows you how silly it is, right? And and unfortunately, what it doesn't do is to take any account of, for example, the damage done to the environment or the value that's really being created or the impact on, on communities. So all of those GDP measures are so myopic and so narrow, and yet all the economists around the world just fixate on GDP. And by the way, the assumption is perpetual growth, right? We're always going to grow and grow and grow. We're getting to the point now where that perpetual growth model 
is broken in my view. So we need a different set of metrics. I mean, I personally think there should be something about well-being and something about, um, you know, the, the uh, benefit to the community and to the, um, you know, the inhabitants of the country, those sorts of things, rather than just pure GDP. Um, that would change the game a little bit in terms of, you know, what's important and where you place your investment dollar and those sorts of things. But the trouble is you can't, as one country, go there unless everybody else goes there too, because otherwise everybody's going to say, oh, your GDP is not looking very good, you know, because we're maybe doing a different set of things. When New Zealanders, for example, have been talking about, New Zealanders have been talking about changing some of those metrics before COVID came up, they've sort of gone a bit silent on it now. But GDP is awful, as, you know, economically, as a measure of anything useful. And like I say, it measures activity, you know, more activity is good, even more activity is better according to GDP, but doesn't tell anything about the quality of that activity. Mm. Yeah, I, I'll be interested to see where that goes. Uh, there was a doco on Netflix about this. Um, it was a Southeast Asian country that started measuring happiness. Hmm. I can't remember the name of this doco. Anyway, I'm sure our producer will find it and link it. But uh, it was it's very interesting. Um, but but I've always thought GNP would work better as one of the measures because it looks at actual gains on a sector by sector basis, not mm. as you said, just uh, activity. Yeah. Um, so that, that will be interesting, I think. Um, and, and, and actually I think you need probably multiple metrics, right. To be yeah, able to actually yeah. triangulate the, you know, the, the benefit and activity and those sorts of things. But, but just using GDP as the, uh, as the benchmark is built on the, the assumption that you can always grow more. And the bigger and faster you grow, the better. And it's always this, you know, what we're talking about there is a top-down philosophy that says, well, if the top, you know, if the top create more value, it sort of trickles down and therefore everybody benefits. We, we know that's not true. We know that there's greater disadvantage between the top and the bottom 10% in the economy. And in fact, GDP is, and the way that GDP is growing, it's creating more in, inequality. So GDP does not actually benefit the bulk of Australians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's interesting on the point of GDP. Uh, I think China's GDP was um, was decimated by uh, by coronavirus, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and the US will obviously be impacted quite a lot. Developing economies, I think I was looking at the numbers for Brazil recently, and their infection rate is just out of control. Um, we've obviously gone from global cooling to the Fed going burr and printing all that money. Um, <laughs> What, what are your thoughts on the global economy and how that how it will perform in relation to Australia? Well, did you see the OECD report that came out yesterday? They actually ran data for quite a few different economies and it was quite interesting. I think Australia was the best placed, uh, sort of third best placed on the international basis, taking account of COVID and what have you. Uh, and they actually run two scenarios. One scenario is based on, um, you know, no second wave, of COVID. In other words, we, we have a peak and it, it dies. The second was on the assumption there will be a second wave. And then they ran the economic scenarios and GDP scenarios on the back of that. And basically, if you have a second wave, then it knocks everything out by at least six to 12 months and creates a huge amount of, uh, of, of disequilibrium. And they made the point that Europe, US, China will all be significantly hit in either of those scenarios. And you know, Australia and New Zealand are doing a whole lot better, which is good. Um, depending on how you measure it. But, of course, it's hard for us as trade-exposed economies 
to really thrive if the rest of the world is still locked down, if the yeah. rest of the world is still dealing with recession and depression. And so um, if you think about where we get our you know, main income from, well, you know, our exports of iron ore, quite strong at the moment, thanks to China's demand. Will that continue? Not sure. Um, we've been helped by the fact the iron ore price is now over 100 US, thanks to Vale, Brazil, being turned off again because of COVID. Um, how long that will be? Not sure how long that's going to be there. But, but tourism, education, you know, those sectors are pretty much um, gone. Uh, and so, yeah, we're a little bit better positioned than some. And we do have the resource sector supporting us a little bit and the agriculture sector supporting us a little bit. But if you look carefully, our economy is very, very narrowly based relative to many other economies around the world. You know, I think we're sort of somewhere in the same ballpark as places like Uganda and places like that. You know, <laughs> we're way down the list. So that, that simplicity rather than complexity of our economy leaves us very exposed. But more importantly, we don't create much value ourselves. Most of it is actually just digging stuff out of the ground and selling it overseas or providing services. So there's a real need, I think, to think about how we create more long-term sustainable value in Australia. And that's yeah. where I come back to innovation and come back to new businesses and new business models. I think we should be, we should be looking differently. And frankly, I would have preferred some of those dollars that were thrown out um, to support the um, you know the COVID situation, go more directly to innovation and investment to create a more sustainable economy here in Australia. Because there is an opportunity if we did but see it. But if you talk to SMEs and other small businesses, they find it really really hard to get the support they need to grow and develop. Mm. Uh, and therefore, we are just reliant on this very small recipe of different elements, which are very trade exposed. Yeah, and this is this is really interesting because I mean, if we think about it, a month and a half ago, we we're talk, all talking about how the world supply chain is going to be reorganised away from China, and um, it still is a topic of note, obviously for Australia. But it seems the government is at least just thinking, okay, we'll just move it to Vietnam, and that's, <laughs> or, that's or India, or India, and that's that's yeah. the way that it would go. So this mm. would tie into the question that I asked you last time about uh, being the treasurer for a year, mm. and I guess I'm curious going back to your point, what, what would you have done? Because uh, I, I always struggle with this conversation with, with uncles and parents when I'm saying that we should be incentivizing local investment to build our capabilities. Hmm. What does that actually look like on the ground, do you think? Well, you know, if, I, if I'd had the reins of power over the last few months, the first thing I would have done would have been um, when we had COVID, recognizing that we had to give people support, I would have put a universal basic income in place, right? As a direct mechanism to support uh, the end consumer and households, as it were, right? Mm. Because that would have been cheaper, more equitable, and easier to manage, in my view, than the very complex mechanisms that they use. That's the first point. Second point is, if you talk to businesses, and, you know, I, I've done a few interviews and we'll do a few more with um, entrepreneurs who've got a business and, you know, a really good idea, but they cannot get that idea taken to the next level because banks are unable or unwilling to support them. And they've got a business plan and the business plan makes sense. But nevertheless, if you talk to a bank, they prefer to write more mortgages rather because the capital is much lower relative to supporting a business, right? So, right. so we have a fundamental structural problem. As a result of that, we need to create a national bank a bank that is specifically set up 
to invest in businesses for the future. So that's something else I would have done to essentially provide access to finance and advice and, uh, you know, the other elements that are required to help businesses innovate, grow and develop. Uh Um, Because there are lots and lots of people in Australia with really, really good ideas, but many of them end up taking them offshore because it's just too hard to jump all over the red tape hurdles and over the funding hurdles here in Australia. And so they go offshore and go to the US or somewhere else, right, and end up essentially um, over there rather than over here. Now, I've been, I've been fortunate, I've been talking to a couple of quite well-known businesses, I won't mention them, here in Australia who are really, really anxious to try and help people understand what needs to change here in Australia to create that innovation engine because we actually are very smart in terms of new ideas and we've got lots of um, you know, really smart people who could, if they really put their mind to it, take us to a different place. And yet, the economic structures and processes that we have in the country and the hurdles that are put in place relative to investment, disinvestment, um, makes it very hard. You know, all of that investment for the construction sector. Um, let's just prop house price up a bit further. I mean, that's dumb money. That really is dumb money, right? We could have actually, you could have used that for smart money and smart investment. And uh, if we'd done that, we could have then started to build a, uh, a momentum and then begin to overlay some of the um, sustainability questions and those future things as well and begin to think about some of those new models that could be created. There is a story to be told about how we could become, again, a much more innovative and clever country. Unfortunately, we seem to prefer just the the, the dumb money and the, uh, the property construction finance debt um, circuit that we discussed previously. This reminds me of something I've read late. 2019 there was a banking and fintech primer and it was looking at the european fintech market and it's particularly done by a firm based in sweden and they looked at the issues in the banking sector and performance by country and so this this report obviously was written in sweden so they looked at the swedish uh banking sector and they came to some number i think it was like 90 percent of all loans are related to mortgages Hmm. now you compare that to germany and Germany has something like 60 or 70% to mortgages and the rest is to uh, businesses. So I guess I'm curious if, if you want to change the carrot at a, at a policy level, what would you do? Would you just literally input ratios into banking institutions and say you have to lend X percentage as a minimum to businesses? Well, the question is, can you get the private sector, finance sector to dance differently? Or do you have to go somewhere different, right? So the, the, the two options are either you, you change the rules. So, you know, the Baal credit rules, or Basel, depending on which side of the river you, you, you look at it from, um, those rules basically make it much more credit advantageous, capital advantageous to lend mortgages vis-a-vis business, right? Yeah. So, so it's about uh, 25, 26% vis-a-vis 75 or 100%, right? So, so in other words, you need four times the amount of capital for business now the argument is it's a higher risk business well yeah maybe but you know look at it from a different lens just lending more mortgages is that good no not necessarily it just inflates prices it just um, allows the banks to increase their balance sheet but doesn't actually create momentum so either you, you you change some of that but that would require international agreement it would require a change to the capital ratios and rules the alternative which is what I mentioned just now, is to create effectively a public bank, a bank that's set up specifically and deliberately to invest 
into the future for you know businesses in particular and you know the old commonwealth bank years ago was mm. such an entity right so it's been done before in australia right and then unfortunately they um privatized it and you know lost the plot a bit but if you go w- way back so that was there and the whole idea is there is is to use some um government funding to assist but effectively lend into those areas and create huge momentum and you can get a massive return on that because essentially if you are investing in businesses and those businesses thrive and grow and develop they can create more value and employ more people and so effectively you know the the, the size of the economy increases and therefore you get a return on what you actually created in the first place so there is a very important economic argument as to why a national bank perhaps makes more sense than trying to actually get private banks to pivot. The other thing I'd make is if you look at Germany, their banking sector is very different. They've got lots of yeah. local banks, right? Yeah. Very much community-based, very much um, local businesses and local banks working together. I think that's another very important observation. But here in Australia, the banking sector has got further and further away from the front line. It's got more and more automated. It's got more and more checkbox driven right formulaically driven and that's why it's harder and harder and harder for businesses to get the support they need so so maybe there's also an argument for creating a constellation of, of smaller community entities now there, there are business building societies and credit unions who potentially could have an interesting role to play if they were perhaps given their head but they've tended to be a little bit hobbled. So yeah they're not they're not the same it's it's a different it's culturally very different there i mean that probably comes back to licensing. I think um, one of the biggest issues in Australia has been how hard it is to get a banking license hmm. in any form, yep. whether it's um, a trial-based license that these new neo banks are getting, like Zinja and and so forth. It it's um, yeah that that's been a massive issue. Well, I guess we can then only hope that um, one day Mount North will be treasurer. <laughs> so I'm not sure Martin this. North wants to be treasurer. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine? That I'm too job? honest. I think I'm too honest. Yeah, imagine that job though. That that would be up there, up there with the prime minister. That would be one of the toughest, most painful jobs. Oh. You, well, you're playing politics all the time, right? Everything is seen. And that's one of the frustrations. Right? Everything is seen through the lens of politics, right? Rather than economics rather than actually thinking about what might benefit the country. It's all about when's the next election cycle, right? We want to keep house prices high so that people don't feel poor, so they'll vote us back in at the next election. Mm. What does the rest of the year look like for Martin? (laughs) Well, uh, at the moment, it's looking pretty busy. There's quite a lot of stuff that um, people want. And, um, uh, you know, I've got this um, YouTube channel going, so I make daily videos to YouTube. I set myself this target a couple of years ago, and I'm still doing it, still doing daily YouTubes. So that sort of shapes my day a little bit. So, um, you know, it doesn't take too long. I've got the production side sorted out, so, you know, it's pretty pretty straightforward. But that, that's always going to be there. Yeah. Um, I think that um, the um, next few months will be very interesting because I think we're going to see some quite interesting surprises in terms of uh, the way the economy works. I think we'll we'll see some winners and we'll see some losers. I expect to see further shakeouts and I want to be across those and basically try and provide a little bit of a compass and direction because one of the feedback that I've got from a lot of my viewers is they're very grateful for some of the things that I was saying a few months ago and they were able to prepare a little bit, you know, pay down debt a little bit and be a bit more cautious on buying houses, right? Because I think it's really important that people understand that in this environment, what 
was once true maybe that prices of property always go up may not be true that in fact um you know investing in stock markets is always a good idea may not be true um there are a bunch of questions that people should be asking and i want to be effectively helping to um you know get people to think differently and perhaps think more broadly about some of these issues Mm. all right we need to jump into some rapid fire questions to finish you off um during this entire period what's been your go-to in terms of uh netflix or docos or anything like that that you've had time to watch at all well i confess um i'm a bit of a star trek nut okay and netflix has been replaying some of the star trek so i've actually been going through the the entire series (laughs) in my spare time the original star trek or like some updated new version well, it was actually, um, I started with um, Next Generation and then Voyager. So, and, and, so, and then there's a new one done as well. So, so there's a whole series of them, right? You could, you, you could literally drown in Star Treks, but I quite like the environment. And I quite like the moral compass that actually sits behind the Star Trek universe, that actually people are valuable and, you know, and, and, and violence isn't necessarily the only answer. You know, some things there are actually quite important. Yeah. I always like the comparison between Star Trek and Star Wars from the respective groups and how evil the others are. So it's, it's, always, it's, always, it's always funny to hear their opinion. Um, what's been sort of the best purchase under $200 that's, that's really helped you during this period of time during the lockdown? Um, I bought a new earpiece, right? Okay. And that was about $80 worth. And my old earpiece was always very rattly. And, you know, I've been using this quite a lot. And, and so, yeah, that $80 worth of new earpiece, probably the best thing I've bought for this whole mm. lockdown. What's, um, what's the, the make of the earpiece? Uh, I actually don't know. It's one I got off um, a John Barry. So it's, it, it's actually a proper, you know, um, uh, like the, like the um, ABC use with the, the little tube and the, the, head, the thing below, behind. The, 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 it was just the, the plastic bit. So, that, you know, there's a little sort of earpiece and then a bit of yeah. plastic tubing, right? That had got essentially blocked. And it was really horrible. And I bought a new one. Bingo, I can hear you. (laughs) I need to, we use, ordinarily, we use these Sennheiser uh, lapel mics for a lot of our Mm. shoots, but not for for these, uh, I guess, laptop-based videos. But I'd like Mm. to pair that with an earpiece exactly like that. Yeah, I I recommend it. So, I mean, I I actually, I use a um, remote. uh, So this is actually my earpiece receiver. So it's actually, you know, so I can walk around and it just goes into, but, but it's beautiful having one that works properly because the previous one, you sort of struggle to listen. uh, So yeah, $80 Um, worth. $80. Very good. Very good purchase. Um, All right. Last question. What's been your go-to food item uh, during all this toilet paper panic and the cleaning out of, uh, I guess, local supermarkets? (laughs) <laughs> well food item right yeah. yeah a food item a food item well i um love freshly cooked bread freshly baked okay. bread and i stocked up before it got serious with bread mix right okay so so i've been working my way through the um german grains bread mix from um a south australian um, producer, right? And I actually got to the point last week where we actually finished the last one and blow me, it was back in the shops. Oh, that's <laughs> so, so funny. Perfect timing. Did you get into uh, baking 
lots of sourdough like everyone on Instagram. I, I, I just went straight for the, um, the German grains mixer. Just stick it in the bread mixer and off it goes. It's brilliant. I recommend it. It's the best bread, best bread ever. Nothing. You can't beat freshly baked bread. What, um, what's the brand, by the way? Lack, lack me, I think it is. Lack the UK, I mean, yeah. Okay. Well, look, um, always a pleasure having you on, Martin. Uh, thanks for your time. And um, where can people, I guess, find you on the interwebs? Yeah. Okay, so uh, the YouTube channel is called Walk the World. It's the DFA uh, channel. Walk the World is my handle on there. Uh, I'm also uh, on my own website at digitalfinanceanalytics.com, and there's a blog there. I'm also on Patreon as well, and again, Digital Finance Analytics. All right. Martin North, thanks for coming on. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes. And consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G O M A R K E T S. Until next time, thanks for listening.